Welcome to the future of the administrative state, where we explore the virtues and vices of administrative power at a time when both right and left fear a growing executive branch. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy and your host for this podcast. Each week, we explore a different aspect of the administrative state and its political ramifications. Today, I'm speaking with Philip Hamburger, the Maurice and Hilda Friedman Professor of Law at Columbia Law School and a leading scholar of the Constitution and its history. He is the author of numerous articles and books on the Constitution, religious liberty, freedom of speech, and administrative law, including the widely discussed book, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? and, more recently, The Administrative Threat. Philip, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, It's a great pleasure for me. Thank you. I want to ask you about the concept of the administrative state to begin. There's been a lot of discussion lately, uh, especially on the right, but not only, uh, in political circles about the administrative state. Uh, Your scholarship and your critique of the administrative state has emphasized, in addition, the idea of administrative power. Could you define, as you see it, uh, what the administrative state is and how, is, how does it relate to this concept of administrative power? Um, so it, I'm sure many people have different interpretations of all of this. Uh, to my mind, the phrase administrative state is not that different from administrative power, the administrative power being the power exercised by this sort of state within the state, this uh, sort of power or institution that was not really anticipated by the Constitution except to bar it. Uh, now, some people would say anything done by the executive is administrative power, but to my mind, that blurs the distinction between lawful executive power and un- unlawful power. Um, but another way, it blurs the distinction between the, ex- the executive and the administrative state, and these are different things. Um, what I focus on in talking about administrative power or the administrative state is the power to bind, the power of the government to create binding rules, rules that constrain not only through Congress, but through agencies, um, or the power to adjudicate not merely through the courts, but through administrative tribunals. Uh, I was hoping to ask you a little bit more about that distinction uh, between binding law uh, and uh, coercive law and benefits, I think is one way that you put it, or rights and privileges. But before doing that, uh, could you talk a little bit about the constitutional context? Why has... Uh, the discussion of the administrative state, and why does your critique uh, focus on uh, constitutional issues as opposed to, say, economic ones? Right. So for the main focus of our Constitution is a matter of law, um, not economics. And the Constitution very carefully places the power to control us in the hands of folks we elect in Congress um, and prevents it from being dispersed out to various executive branch officers, or even private parties. And that's what the administrative state does. It's the creation of a power to bind us through rules, and then also through enforcement and miniature courts, um, that are not made by Congress, and are not really imposed by the courts. And what this means is the constitutional protections we get when law is made and enforced through constitutional pathways. get lost. One way I describe it is is off-road driving. Uh, Off-road driving is, when you don't follow the the, the pathways laid out by the Constitution, can be very exciting. It's exhilarating to be in an off-road vehicle if you're in the driver's seat. Uh, But it it is, it should be very unnerving for the rest of us. 
because well, because it's illegal to rely on, the, on, on walking the pavement without being run over by some vehicle that's <laughs> gone off road. That's what the administrative state does. A lot of the discussion focuses in terms of the constitutional issues on the idea of separation of powers and how administrative power uh, may violate or conflate the distinction between the different branches of government. But something that your scholarship has emphasized in particular is the idea that administrative power is a threat to civil civil liberties. And I think this idea may be less familiar to our listeners. Could you unpack that idea in particular? Sure. There have been a number of errors, I think, in resisting the administrative state. One is the focus on economics, uh, which, as I said, I think is secondary, although not unimportant. And the other is the emphasis on separation of powers, our Constitution does separate powers into three branches of government, uh, but it, most fundamentally it defines our freedom, our freedom from government. And it does this both through granting limited powers and dividing them up, and through the guarantees of the Bill of Rights. And one of the astonishing things about this administrative state that really doesn't get discussed sufficiently is that it is, to my mind, the most serious threat to civil liberties in our era. Uh, it is a threat to the civil liberties, in fact, of every single American. Take, for example, just procedural rights, because this is just an, an easy example. When an administrative agency adjudicates that you violated some regulation and doesn't go through, a, instead of going through a court, just has an ALJ, an administrative law judge, decide this, you don't get to go you have your day in court. You don't get a real judge. You get an administrative employee. Uh, you don't get a jury. Your jury rights just disappear. Poof gone. Um, the burdens of proof and persuasion and all the other requirements of due process just disappear. Uh, you get, it's what's told, all the process that's due. <laughs> uh, that's what the Supreme Court tries to reassure us with. But all the process that's due turns out to be practically nothing. Uh, it's as if I went into a bar, ordered a whiskey, a single malt, and was served water with just one drop of whiskey in it. <laughs> that, that just doesn't, that, that doesn't satisfy me. I don't know about you. It doesn't quite cut it. No. How did this uh, come to be, in particular this um, uh, problem of adjudication within agencies, uh, to you know, a lay observer that might seem sort of flagrantly unconstitutional if you believe that adjudication should take place only through the courts? Um, what's the, the rationale for that? How could that have ever right. have developed? So the, 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 uh, there, there's a double rationale. One is the old argument of necessity, which has always been used by absolute rulers to justify more or less anything. Um, the courts just can't handle the burden of business, therefore we have to have administrative courts. Uh, and then the, the, the more law-like justification is that you can always appeal to a court. Um, and so don't worry if anything goes wrong or it's unfair. Don't worry, you get to have your day in court later. Uh, now, this, this is rather funny, of course, because one has one's constitutional right to be, uh, have one's trial in court with a jury and due process and a real judge in the first instance, not later. And that's actually uh, settled in one of the earliest of American constitutional decisions, the 10-pound cases in New Hampshire, mm. in 1786, the year before the Constitution was adopted. Uh, so it's clearly nonsense that you have to wait. What's more, there's a doctrine, there's a doctrine called um, exhaustion of administrative remedies, 
which I translate as exhausting the finances of administrative defendants. Mm. Because by the time you get through the administrative process, you are mentally and financially often exhausted. I can't tell you how many people have called me about this saying, yeah, I had my day in court, but by the time I got to court, I, had no, I was bankrupt. Mm. I couldn't hire a lawyer. Uh, and it gets worse because when you do appeal from an administrative agency's tribunal to the courts, the courts will defer to the administrative agency on both the facts and the law. Uh, now, this is problematic because, of course, those are the only two things you can argue, facts and law. What else is there? Mm. So, you know, you know, you don't get a jury. They just defer to the administrative record. And on the law, they'll just defer to the agency's interpretation of the statute, Chevron and all that. It's, uh, it's not really your day in court. Could you explain a little bit that concept of uh, delegation uh, or, or deference, rather? Uh, right. For example, the idea of Chevron deference. Right. So uh, there's long been a tendency of the courts to accept the facts, fact-finding of administrative agencies and even to accept their interpretations of statutes. And the latter, the, the deference to their interpretation of statutes, is sort of codified, reified in a case known as Chevron, um, which is now being questioned. And all of this deference, whether on fact and law, is very problematic. Most people worried about it, as you suggested earlier, on account of the separation of powers problems. And so there are about a thousand or two thousand law review articles in Chevron separation of powers. Hmm. What all of all of that analysis failed to recognize is that there's actually a problem in court. Um, when a court hears an appeal from an administrative agency, uh, in a circuit court, for example, there's an appeal, um, and they defer, the real problem arises where the government is a party. In many cases, the government is actually on one side of the case, and that means any deference to the agency interpretation or facts is actually bias, judicial bias, in favor of the government. And this is a fundamental problem, uh, because nothing could be more violative of due process of law. The courts themselves have corrupted their processes and, turned, and made them biased in order to defend the administrative state. And that's going to destroy the reputation of the judges unless they reverse this promptly. We were discussing earlier this uh, idea of coercion or binding law. Uh, and, and I wanted to, to get back to this a little bit. In, in your book, Is Administrative Law Unlawful?, uh, you say explicitly that your, your argument uh, depends on this distinction between benefits and coercion, I believe is the language you use, or maybe uh, more broadly, rights and privileges. What, what is that distinction, and, and how is it related to administrative power? So the Constitution has always distinguished between uh, the largesse of government, its gifts, whether it be in terms of jobs or money, um, and the constraints it imposes, the legal duties it imposes that you have to obey or you'll be punished in court. That, that sort of distinction is inherent in, in much of the Constitution. Uh, that distinction has been questioned by a lot of legal academics uh, during the past 20 or 30 years, but it still remains a strong distinction. And what I'm focusing on are merely the binding power of government, the power to impose a, a legal obligation. Uh, and that's because the Constitution allows the executive to exercise great discretion in distributing benefits. If Congress says, here's a million dollars, distribute it, and the executive can decide as it wishes where it goes, that's perfectly constitutional. That's not a problem. But if, the con if, the, if Congress says, uh, the executive should punish Americans for 
smoking or for drinking the wrong set of beer, uh, and the executive gets to decide what the rules are as who gets punished, that's profoundly unconstitutional. Uh, the power to create legal obligation, a duty to obey a rule, is uh, something that can only be in elected members of, in Congress, uh, elected by the people. That's what the revolution was about, right? Um, no taxation without representation. Mm-hmm. We can only be bound through our consent, and that consent through comes through our elected representatives, not some person hidden away in the executive. So what about those aspects of the administrative state that do concern benefit? I mean, you allude to them right. being perfectly constitutional, but how much of the business of administrative agencies falls on the side of right. uh, binding law versus benefit? Right. I could imagine no, I would not a di- call that administrative. I think that's perfect. That I would distinguish between lawful executive power and unlawful administrative power. Uh, the distribution of benefits is a large part of the government's business. Agencies do this all the time. Uh, we may have doubts. I have some reservations about how it's done. I think a lot of the money is misspent. I'm not in favor of excessive government largesse. But that's not what this argument is about, uh, because it seems to me that's a matter of prudence. Uh, it may be a matter of limits and substantive grants of power to Congress, you know, how broad is the Congress power. But my argument against the administrative state is different. It's not about the substance of spending. It's about the unlawfulness of imposing legal obligation and constraint uh, through agencies rather than through Congress and the courts. So this is a procedural argument, not about substance. So if you want to have a lot of government spending, you'll have no quarrel with my argument about the administrative state, because I mm-hmm. think the spending is lawful executive power. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could debate that question of spending. It's just not this argument. And it seems to me the spending problem is you're more open to, to reasonable debate. Uh, what I think is supremely problematic, uh, that is, a cri- I think, a crisis in civil liberties these days, is that the government now can evade all of the constitutional pathways for imposing obligation. It can evade Congress by simply shoving the power off into agencies, and then we don't elect our, our lawmakers. And it can evade the court system and all the Bill of Rights by simply saying, we're going to punish you administratively in administrative tribunals. So the result is our civil lib- our, our procedural rights in the Bill of Rights have become not guarantees, but they've turned into mere options for government power. They were guaranteed. The government could not impose the obligation on me without working through the courts, judges, juries, due process. Now the government can say, if we feel like it, we'll do that. But if we feel like another method that's easier, we'll just go against you administratively. And astonishingly, the SEC has been explicit about this. Cisneri, who's the director of enforcement there in the summer of 2014, said, you know, we have two options. We could go against you in the courts where you've got a jury, but we sometimes lose in juries. So sometimes I think we're going to proceed against you more often administratively where you don't get a jury. <laughs> that makes us happier. I don't think it makes so the rest of us Americans very happy. Because <laughs> they, just, they just blow away our constitutional rights. It's the funniest thing ever if it weren't so serious. You're listening to The Future of the Administrative State. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy. I'm speaking with Philip Hamburger, a legal scholar at Columbia University and prominent critic of the administrative state. Philip has been explaining why he thinks administrative power is inherently unconstitutional, not only because it violates the separation of powers, but also because it denies Americans their due process rights. He calls this the civil liberties issue of our time. This uh, may not go to the issue of adjudication, but 
many people who defend the administrative state uh, will say things like, uh, and to put this in, in your language, uh, the administrative state isn't um, creating binding law. They are executing binding law. And the power to do that uh, is deeply rooted in our, in our constitutional history. And, and a certain amount of delegation uh, has always existed in our country's history. It goes back to the founding of the republic. How, how would you respond to that kind of argument? Oh, it, that's, that's a funny argument. The, uh, so first, I'll just to put aside the history for a second. Um, the, uh, there has been delegation of power over officers, which the horse executive has power to control its officers, and power over matter of benefits and power over licensing at the borders. But for national, domestic, or internal regulation, there was no delegation of, of um, legislative power. Uh, it was all done by Congress in very complex statutes. Just as today, Congress can pass very complex statutes. Hmm. It's, it's, it's not a big deal. One of the defenses of administrative power is the agencies aren't really making law. They're just carrying out what Congress said. Right. Um, now, the awkwardness is that Congress, in these authorizing statutes, often just presents something akin to a Rorsatch test, such as, we shall have clean air, and then, the, and then the agency gets to define what that is. And, the, you know, one could say that in some highly theoretical sense, there is a principle there that's simply being carried out by the agencies. And the Supreme Court, in fact, has a doctrine, the intelligible principle test. Um, if Congress applies an intelligible principle, then there's been no delegation of legislative power. But, of course, uh, everyone knows this is a joke. Uh, this is a fiction. And we shouldn't be governed by fictions. The reality, again, is everybody in the agencies and outside knows the agency is actually making, inventing rules. And in fact, often they do so in ways that are clearly unauthorized by the statute. So uh, I, I don't think fiction should really be governing our constitutional law. It just creates a mode of evading the Constitution's pathways for power. What about those who would accept a certain amount of extra constitutionality for, uh, for administrative power, but argue, as you alluded to earlier, that society and our economy have grown so complex, uh, the problems we face in modern society are so urgent uh, that it's necessary to avoid a gridlocked or slow, inefficient Congress, and so on and so forth, and, and that this is something that the founders might not have envisioned. Uh, the Constitution doesn't doesn't bar this uh, because it it wasn't a pro it wasn't a problem that existed in the 18th century. So uh, there are a number of angles on this. Uh, first of all, just as to the whether or not they anticipated it, uh, actually, administrative power really just revives absolute power, the absolute prerogative of the kings. One might even say that it's a direct descendant of it because, of course, we borrowed it from Germany where it survived and wasn't abolished in the 17th century. So this is a power that was actually quite familiar to the founders. Uh, they called it prerogative. We call it administrative. But it's the same, more or less the same thing for these purposes. It's extra-legal power, power exercised not through law and the courts of law. And in that sense, it's a mistake, I think, to say it wasn't anticipated. On the contrary, they knew about it. They detested it. They drafted the Constitution carefully to bar it. And that's why the Constitution says, begins the very first word, all, all legislative powers shall be in Congress, etc. Um, if that was permissive, there'd be no reason for the word all. It's an exclusive grant to Congress. They understood this power and barred it. And frankly, much of the Bill of Rights was designed to bar this sort of power. Um, 
due process was understood to be that which is had in court and nowhere else. Um, due process, a guarantee of due process is a way of guaranteeing there are no, there's no extra legal adjudication. Now, do we need it because society's changed? Um, well, uh, actually, if our society is complex as the defenders of administrative power say, and it is complex, maybe that's reason to fear creating a monopoly of unrepresentative power in agencies which don't have the scientific expertise to understand what's actually going on. Um, one of the beauties of representative government is that it's inherently responsive to the electorate. And one of the dangers of administrative power is we have rules that were imposed by agencies 70 years ago, and they're still applied, even though they're long out of date. Uh, in fact, agencies are so bereft of sufficient knowledge about our society that they're often codifying what they think is science 10, 20 years beforehand. And one of the problems, of course, is science isn't a solid expert knowledge. Science is an evolving, complex, contestable thing. Sure. There is no scientific truth uh, that we can identify. We have theories which we debate in order to discern the truth. And so agencies actually have at best a 19th, if not a 14th century vision of science. Actually, that's unfair <laughs> to the 14th century. <laughs> you mentioned uh, just a minute ago that you know, there's this English prehistory, if you like, which which I found really fascinating in, in, in your in your book. Um, but there also is this, uh, what you call the German connection. Uh, could you uh, explain that a little bit? How, how German ideas about political theory right. and law influenced American thinking about the administrative state? Right. So when I first when I first started writing on the subject, I did so because I was a I was very familiar with 17th century history. I practiced in various administrative areas such as tax, and I suddenly realized, oh, we've been through this before. This is 17th century style government. It's everything that the Constitution rejected. Hmm. But then I had to wonder, how did this come back? Uh, and at first, I thought it was just we've revived it because people like to evade limits. When governments always like to avoid the difficulty of ruling through law, they very naturally will turn to other pathways. But then it turned out to be more complicated uh, because, in fact, it wasn't just some natural revival. There's a direct genealogical link. Um, in the mid-19th century, many Americans were attending university, and the model universities were German, indeed Prussian. And... The, these Americans, all of whom are, became part of what we could call the knowledge class, people who value abstract knowledge more than the affinities and hierarchies of local of localities, um, many of them went off to Germany to study, thousands of them. And they studied, uh, not least in Berlin, um, under people like Treitschke, who was the inventor of the so-called Maschstadt, and we know where that led. Hmm. Uh, so they studied with folks who had utter contempt for constitutionalism. The Germans developed uh, already in 18th century with scholars like von Justi, but then this was taking further 19th century, uh, a systematic denigration of representative government, of constitutionalism, and of separation of powers. And in its place, they had what they call what we call administrative law. Uh, which was simply the old prerogative power systematized and turned bureaucratic. So as whereas kings had a personal uh, extra-legal or prerogative power, uh, the Germans in the 18th century in particular turned this into the state's 
or bureaucratic administrative power, and they become the chief theorists of administrative power. Mm. So Americans go study this theory and then bring it back to the United States. And extraordinarily, the, um, one of the leading advocates of administrative power is Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> and Woodrow Wilson's one of the few advocates of administrative power in America who did not go to Germany. But he learned German. He taught himself German. And in fact, uh, a wonderful scholar, Robert uh, Mewald, uh, went through his lectures and compared it to the German treatises and realized that in the few places where Woodrow Wilson was actually innovative and original, it was just because he had his German was so bad he mistranslated the treatises. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so this stuff comes from a type of power, absolutism, that was perhaps systematized and made even worse in Germany. And that, you know, that should give us pause. Taking a step back, uh, I want to ask you more broadly how you think we, we got where we are today. Uh, Woodrow Wilson maybe is, is a key player in, in that story. Uh, one of the the arguments that you develop in your book, which I, which really fascinated me, was uh, the connection between the rise of administrative power in the United States uh, to the rise of universal suffrage. So what's the, the democratic background here? Do you, how do you see uh, those two threads coming together? Right. This, is, this is the most disturbing civil liberties aspect of them all. Uh, it's really very unnerving. Uh, the knowledge class, the folks who uh, got a bit of education and felt themselves to have the truth and to be tasteful, uh, looked with some disdain on the product of expanding suffrage in America. You know, in, in America in the 1830s, white men get to vote more or less universally. Property qualifications were largely abolished then. 1870, blacks, at least in theory, get to vote. 1920, women get to vote. In 1965 and thereafter, blacks really get to vote. And at each stage, uh, many progressives and certainly members of the knowledge class, although they favored equal suffrage as a matter of theory, uh, were very disturbed by the results. They did not like the rambunctious, uh, often noisy, tumultuous politics that resulted. Uh, and partly this is just a matter of taste. They preferred rational discussion. Uh, Partly also, however, it was political. As Woodrow Wilson said, and this is more or less a quote, uh, he, he, he says, it's very difficult to persuade Irishmen, Germans, and Negroes to adopt progressive reforms. And then he goes on to talk about how many immigrants uh, have had their brains warmed under, climate, under the sun of different climates, and they're not really as reliable as Americans, quote, of the older stock. Um, now this, this is disgraceful language. Uh, now, Woodrow Wilson is a known racist, but the implications are more, go far beyond racism. You know, if we think about what really matters in our society and what's really changed in the last two centuries, last century or and a half, what's really changed since the Civil War is we have equal suffrage. The other major change we've had constitutionally is we have the administrative state, and it turns out they're linked. It's 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 like a switch the switch and bait. Sorry, bait and switch. They, you know, we're told you get equal suffrage. Blacks get to vote, women get to vote, everyone gets to vote. But then legislative power is simultaneously taken out of the legislature and put into the administrative state, where it's exercised by members of the knowledge class, many of whom, as it happens, are white males, uh, and that's not entirely an accident. Um, but it's not really about race. It's really about class, I think. And 
it's very disturbing. The greatest dilution of voting rights is the administrative state. What do you think can or should be done to address that, to rectify that wrong? And stepping back, thinking more broadly again about uh, the state of the administrative state, so to speak, um, <laughs> what's what's called for? Is it reform, radical reform, revolution? What do you see as the prescription? Right. Um, so I tend to be a fairly moderate, mild-mannered guy. Uh, I think we have to get rid of the administrative state, but I think we can do it in a very reasonable way. Um, the first step is exactly what we're doing right here, simply to talk about it. Uh, when someone tells you about the, you know, the intelligible principle test, one should just laugh and just note that it's a fiction. You should call, the bluff, one should call their bluff. When someone says you get review in courts, particularly when a judge tells you that, one should laugh and point out that no, in fact, in courts, the judges are biased when they hear administrative cases and they deny you the right to a jury and to process. All of this should just be, the first response should be simply be candor. Uh, and that will be very refreshing and go a long way to fixing this. Now, of course, there's more. Uh, it would be nice if Congress were to pass the Separation of Powers Act and uh, if it were to take uh, abolish some ALJs and switch their power into a few new district court judges, you know, for example. ALJs being the administrative law judges. Law judges, that's right. There aren't that many of them. You know, for example, at the SEC, there are only five administrative law judges, uh, and some of them have been accused of fairly serious bias. So it would not be very expensive simply to take them out of the budget, create five new district court judges, and see what happens. And if the sky doesn't fall, do it at another agency and so forth. Uh, this can be done step by step in very moderate ways. Now, in addition, I think the Trump administration or any administration could simply tell its agencies one by one to submit their regulations to Congress for Congress to adopt or not. And if an agency doesn't get their statute within a certain number of months, they should just have their budget cut by 5%. And that will get their attention and not get it done. It will motivate them. Uh, what's more, federal lawyers, I mean, think about the, all the government lawyers who go into court and ask for deference on the facts and on the law. Uh, they are participating in a violation of due process. And they should think twice about that. That leads to certain ethics problems and perhaps something worse. And the judges themselves should worry about this. The judges, in a sense, have created much of this problem. They are a backstop against unlawful power. And yet they've just bent over backwards to defend administrative state. If they care about the reputation of the courts, they have to reconsider that. Uh, they should not be biased in favor of any party, let alone systematically biased in favor of the government whenever it acts administratively. And they should not be denying jury rights. If each part of, you know, we don't need, I don't expect each part of the government fully to do its job. That's unrealistic. But we can expect some of them to do some of their job some of the time. <laughs> a modest hope. Uh, yes. <laughs> right. And, of course, there's something else, which is litigation. And I think we're increasingly going to see serious litigation on this, not just defending against a regulation that happens not to like, like an EPA regulation or something like that, but regulation challenging the very heart of the administrative state. Uh, there's no reason for the government to be acting unconstitutionally. There's a tendency, I think, among conservatives in particular who worry about the legal aspects of the administrative state to focus on what the courts can do, 
do you think there's also something that needs to happen on the Democratic side, not just representatives in Congress, but also American citizens broadly? Uh, yeah. Is there a kind of uh, rethinking about the nature of democracy or something like that that has to take place, or even a changing of the mechanisms of how our representative uh, government currently functions? So I, I'm not generally an optimist, but on this, I think I am. Uh, I think many Democrats are beginning to realize that the power uh, that is out, lies outside constitutional pathways can be abused, and I think there's some reconsideration along these lines. I think most people want a certain freedom of choice and in many areas of life, and they want to have some predictability uh, and about their constitutional rights. As soon as anybody of either party is hauled before an administrative tribunal, they will learn, they learn a lot about what they like and what they don't like. So it seems to me what we're discussing here is not politics. It's not about the substance of policy, but about whether or not we get our basic constitutional liberties, whether this, whether the Bill of Rights is going to be gutted, you know, as it is when the guarantees turn into mere options, or whether we actually can enjoy those rights. And I, I can't help thinking all Americans will tend eventually to recognize that point and therefore want to limit the administrative state. Well, I think that's a, a perfect uh, place to end. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to join us and to talk about your scholarship. Oh, thank you. It's been an immense pleasure and uh, I, I'm most grateful. Thank you for listening. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy and your host for this podcast. Joining me next week is Paul Verkyle, former chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. A well-known professor and scholar of administrative law, he has written widely on public law and regulation, including, most recently, his book, Valuing Bureaucracy, The Case for Professional Government.